0: This morning I have a, uh, a desire to communicate Matthew sixteen eighteen to you in a way that I hope will, look, I mean, I hope at one level there's a sense of conviction of a need for change, but I hope really that the end result of our discussion this morning will be that you are encouraged to step out in the power of God, to do the work of God, joining with Him in building the kingdom of God on earth. That's my desire. That we, as the church, would step out of the shadows. That we would step out of the margin of the page of life into the text of life where people live and become courageous, bold witnesses of the cross work of Christ and its power to change lives forever. The passage of scripture that I want us to focus our attention on is Matthew sixteen eighteen. In the midst of the text... That Ron read for us. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, that you are Peter, and on this rock, and if I just, let me just set this up for you. I tell you, you are Peter, the word in the Greek is Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. So there's a play on words with the desire to draw a connection between this confession and the person of Peter and the work that Jesus Christ is establishing. Okay? I say to you, you are Peter, the rock, and upon this rock, Petra, I'm going to build my church. Okay, so, typically when Jesus is speaking with Peter, there's an editorial comment that I think is directed towards all of the disciples. As you study through the Gospels and you find the corrections of Peter, you find Jesus speaking to Peter and then turning to all the disciples. That is just a a common means by which he addresses them. And I think I can show you the validation for that connection. If you listen, let me just read this for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, where Paul is talking about the establishment of the body of Christ on a foundation. Okay, and I think when Peter is addressed by Jesus and he says, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, the question becomes, what is the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church? Church meaning what? Does anybody know what the idea of the word church means, take a shot at it, what does church mean? The body of Christ, okay? Um, It means, in the most literal sense, it means an assembly of people called together. Okay, an assembly of people called together, and and the the implication is that that assembly has a God-given purpose or function. In other words, we have come together this morning, God willing, for a purpose. Lord willing, there is something we want to see God do in our hearts and lives this morning as a result of this gathering and the opening of the Word of God to ask Him to begin to do a work in our lives. Okay? So, upon this rock, I will build an assembly of people who ultimately will fulfill my God-glorifying purposes. That's what Jesus is saying. Now... That foundation and that rock. Let me just give you some clarity on it. Paul says, consequently, you, the believers in Ephesus, are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's own household. Now listen to what he says next. You are being built on the foundation. Okay, and there's the key word. Because in the ancient world, they didn't have cement. wasn't invented yet. They use stones as a foundation. You are being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Okay, so that starts to give you an understanding of what this is. There is a chief cornerstone that is laid. That cornerstone to the assembled people of God is Christ. The stones that make up the rest of the foundation built around that cornerstone are are the apostles. Who are they? They are the early, or if you will, even first witnesses to the cross work, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Okay? So Jesus says to Peter, you are the rock, and upon the rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overtake or overtake. it. Now, what I want to look at is four key words that I think will help us to unpack this passage of Scripture. If you're uh, looking at the notes that I gave out, it'll help you to follow along a little bit better, I believe. Four basic truths that emerge from this text. In some way, I want to say they are promises, uh, but just four uh, ideas that emerge as you look at this one passage of Scripture. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overtake it. The first thing that I think emerges in this text is that word commitment. The word commitment. Okay? Who is it in this text that is exercising commitment? Who's exercising commitment in this text? Is it the church or is it Christ? Christ. Okay, it's Christ. So here's what I want to say about that commitment. Jesus Christ, and this to me is so important, Jesus Christ is committed to building His church. Listen to what He says. I will build my church. I am going to assemble a group of people who will live to glorify and honor my Father. Jesus Christ is committed to building His church, which means He will establish a gathered community of believers who assemble for God-given purposes, and I think it is a commitment to help them grow. I will is the commitment. Build my church is the commitment to help them grow. Folks, I understand this. That is a very simple statement. probably thinking, Pastor, I hope it didn't take you too long to get to that thought. But I want you to think about that. When Peter hears from the Father that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, And he makes that proclamation to Christ. Who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're Moses. Some say you're Elijah. Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. The Son of the living God. Jesus says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. That is not coming from human intuition, from human understanding. Father in heaven revealed that to you by His Spirit. And now I'm going to give you my revelation. The Trinity joining together. Peter, I'm going to build my church. Your name is Peter Rock. And upon this rock, this assembly of believers built around the cornerstone of Christ, he's going to build an edifice of believers that are assembled for His glory for all eternity. Folks, the work that we gather together to do in the church is a work that Jesus Christ Himself is deeply and personally committed to. What I want to drive home in this thought is this. The triumphant triumphant authority of this promises that, of this promise that Jesus is going to complete what He has begun in the church. So the first word that emerges is there is a commitment expressed by Christ. He is committed to building His church. Second thought that I want to lead into. He says, I will build my church. And here's the question I have for you. Is he here doing that? Is he here doing that right now? I'll be honest, okay? At one level, I want to say, no, he's in heaven. He ascended into heaven. And is seated at the Father's right hand. And yet he says to us, I will build my church. And then the question that starts to emerge is, okay, if he's in heaven, then how is he going to build his church on earth when he is not here? So he has a commitment to do it, but he left. Second word that comes to mind is the word cooperation. Cooperation. Okay, so when I think about the church, what is it? It is something that Jesus Christ is committed to building, and this work of building the church is a cooperative effort. This summary thought then. All effective ministry, that is all effective church-related ministry, is an active cooperation with God. Okay, all effective church ministry is the result of an active cooperation with God. It is the means by which God is building His church. Folks, here's the question then that emerges. Who is it that God is cooperating with to build His church? I think the answer from this text becomes very clear, and I think from the broader context of the book of Matthew, it becomes even clearer. I want you to look with me back at Matthew chapter 4. Just flip back to the, towards the beginning of the book. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19 and verse 21. I feel like I'm still shaking off the effects of whatever I battled with all day yesterday. So I'm like extremely hot. Matthew 4 and verse 19. Notice what he says. Calling Peter and Andrew. Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Drop down down then to verse 21. Going on from there he saw two other brothers. James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in the boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Go then to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. The Word of God says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now you say, Pastor Tim, why are you going back through those verses? Because when I look at the calling of Peter and James, and the calling of the other disciples, I find that Jesus is calling them into a cooperative ministry. Okay? He doesn't tell them to build the church. He says, I will build my church. Which I find to be fascinating. Any work of God that's going to have a lasting impact will always be the result of a cooperative effort with God. Now, these thoughts then, I think, emerge. People in the life of Christ are crucial and important. Okay, you find this as you go through the Gospels. Jesus is always working in the context of people. He's calling people and delegating to them ministry, effective ministry. He's giving them His Spirit to make them effective as witnesses in His kingdom. They're always important and crucial, but... In the task of building the church, Christ is, and listen to this word, Christ is ultimate. Okay, this text says, I will build my church. Jesus is the one who is building the assembly of believers. We have the privilege of cooperating with Him. Our participation with Him is crucial. That I get up every day and say, Lord, I want You to use me today is a crucial commitment. But the thing that I need to realize as a Christian is this. The presence of Christ in my life through His Spirit is ultimate. Okay, if I'm going to be effective in making a difference in the lives of people, I need to realize that my willingness to serve is critical. But the power of Christ in my life Is ultimate. Does that make sense? So Christ says. I'm going to build my church. But then he leaves. (laughs) His commitment is clear. But that it becomes. And is a cooperative effort. Becomes very very powerful. As I was thinking about this yesterday. I, I, I was reflecting on. Two miracles. In Matthew. Chapter 14. Two miracles where Jesus is building faith in the heart of His disciples to cause them to be people that cooperate with Him in impossible tasks. The one miracle in Matthew 14 is the feeding of the 5,000. You just turn back there real quick if you want to take a look at this. Uh, Matthew 14:13 through 21. Okay, There's the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which is the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Okay, why does Jesus do this miracle? Why does he do this? And I think the answer is found at the end of the story. Okay, if you read all of the gospel accounts together, you'll find that, that Jesus attracts to himself a large crowd, and then he says to the disciples, hey, it's been, awfully, it's been an awfully long day, you need to feed these people. And they look at Jesus and say, we don't have the financial resources, nor do we have the physical resources to fulfill that directive. Right? They look at Him with a heart of bewilderment, with a look of deep concern. How can we feed them? We don't have enough to do the job. And Jesus asked them to sit down. He takes the minimal resources that that they have, and cooperating with Him, the 5,000 are fed, and at the end of the miracle what happens? The Bible tells us that they come before Jesus holding how many baskets of bread? How many baskets do they have? Twelve. Why does He do that? Because He wants them to realize that the work of His kingdom is a cooperative effort in which He takes meager resources and uses them to accomplish wonderful things. The next passage in the same chapter, chapter 14, Is the story where Jesus comes walking on the water? Ask yourself this question Why does Jesus do that? Is it a power trip? Is he showing off? You have to think this through. Why is he walking on the water? The disciples are in the midst of the lake, they're struggling against the wind, they can't get across. Jesus comes walking on the water. My question is, why? Were there options? Could Jesus just have caused the wind to cease blowing and drawn the boat to the other side? The answer is, absolutely. But it's not how He solves the problem. He comes walking on the water. Peter sees Him, and out of absolute fear, they cry out, and Jesus says to them, Peter, it's me. Peter says, command that I walk to you on the water. And Jesus says, Peter, come. Peter gets out of the boat, begins to walk on the water towards Christ, doing the impossible in a cooperative effort. At the end of the miracle, Jesus steps into the boat with Peter after rescuing him because he began to sink when he looked at the violent storm that was around him. When they climbed into the boat, verse 33, it says, then those who were with him in the boat... Worshipped Him saying what? Truly, you are the Son of God. What is Jesus showing them? Jesus is revealing for them over and over His incredible power that is available to them as they cooperate with Him in fulfilling their God-given calling. Folks, look. The reason most of us don't share the Gospel is bound up in many of the answers that you gave. We are simply afraid. We think it's up to us. Right, Heather? When we're asked the questions that we can't answer, what are we thinking? I can't answer that question. What am I gonna do? We're afraid of what people are gonna think about us. We're afraid we're gonna look stupid. We're afraid we're gonna be rejected. We're afraid of everything. Why does Jesus perform these miracles and record them for us in the pages of Scripture? so that we will understand that in His power, we can do the things that we know we cannot do in and of ourselves. That when we release ourselves to the infilling of His indwelling Spirit, and allow Him to overtake our lives, He begins to do through us things that we know we can't do. Including the task of helping to build the assembly of believers on earth, for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe the Apostle Paul captures this thought very, very clearly in relationship to evangelism. Here's what he says. He says, one plants and another waters. And he's using an agricultural analogy. One plants a seed, one waters the seed. Who causes it to grow? God. And in the end of that account, Paul says, the reason God does it that way is because we in our work of sharing the Word of God, have a critical role, but God has the ultimate role. We sow the seed, we plant it, but God's the one who brings new life. One of the reasons we don't share the Gospel is because we look at our resources, right? We look at our capacity to give the answers, our capacity to know all the verses we need to know, and we bail out continually because we are convinced that our resources are inadequate. I have news for you they are inadequate and the sooner we realize it the sooner we're going to lean on the power of God and say God I want you to use me in joining with you in a cooperative effort of building your church on earth I asked my wife to bring me a glove this morning not because I'm cold because I'm not this glove is a very nice glove but it is, as it is right now, ineffective. My, I laid my keys here earlier. Some of you might be wondering why my keys are laying up here. Here's why. I wanted to show you this. Okay? What has to happen? Here's what has to happen. You have to put a hand inside of a glove, and when you do, it cooperates to accomplish a task. Okay, you and I are like this glove apart from the power of God. We have capacities, we have functions, warming, protecting. Okay, that glove has those capacities of working, accomplishing things. But until there is an infilling and empowering, a cooperation, we are ineffective. Jesus Christ says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, He says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the infilling of the Spirit of God comes. And when He comes, Acts 1 8 says this. Let me just read this so I get this straight on for you. Acts 1 8, He says, You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, and in Samaria, and in all Judea, and unto the ends of the earth. Witnesses of what? Of the message of Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. And the disciples who were truthfully, at best, very weak vessels. Timid vessels, fearful vessels. Just weeks before this proclamation, they had denied Christ and fled at the time of his crucifixion? And now they're encountering the possibility, prospect, likelihood of his departure? And Jesus says to them, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the indwelling Spirit. And when he comes, and when he, like a hand in a glove, fills you in a cooperative effort, you will be the ones who will spread the good news of my kingdom around the world. So this promise in this verse tells us that Christ is committed to building his church that this work of building is a work of cooperation in which all effective ministry is an act of cooperation with God another verse that comes to mind John 15:5 Jesus says to his disciples abide in me because apart from me you can do nothing Okay, what is required of us to be effective as servants of God, to be effective in helping to build the church, is to realize that it is a cooperative effort in which we depend upon the power of God to take the good news of Christ out into the world around us. Something that all of us as believers want to do, but feel inadequate in doing. We feel afraid, we feel weak, we feel timid. But when we allow ourselves to be filled with the Spirit of God, I believe that God will give us a renewed sense of courage. A third thought is introduced in this verse when he says this, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. Okay, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Apostles, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell... And the idea here is is, is very interesting. The idea of gates is, the in the ancient world, it was the place of authority. It was where verdicts came down. It's where authority was exercised in the ancient world, at the city gates. So, the gates of hell, the domain of Satan, his active working will not overcome the church. But if Jesus says the gates of hell will not overtake it or overcome it, I think that begins to imply something very, very powerful. And I think it's something that's important for us to understand. When you take up an active role in building the assembly of God, when you say, I am committed to that, here's what you can expect. Can you come up with the next word here? What can you expect? Starts with a C. Conflict. Okay? So there's a commitment in a cooperative effort But when you join Christ in His work, you better realize that you are going to face conflict. Now, the promise that Jesus is giving is this. The gates of hell will rage against the church. And if you study church history, you will find that this has been absolutely true from the beginning of the church. But all of the efforts to silence the witness of Christ have been rendered ultimately ineffective. You say, Tim, how do you know that? Because the church of Christ is alive and well. It is doing its God-given work. And it is growing for His glory. My heart was so encouraged in Indonesia. We visited with the church of 20,000 believers. A church made up of 1,300 cell churches. That's reaching out into the city of Jakarta, Indonesia. Powerfully for the glory of God. In the midst of great trouble. We heard about a pastor. The last night before we, we left to fly home, we met with the man who was the lead pastor of that church at the airport. Only had 15 minutes to meet with him. And as we sat down to talk with him, he shared with us a story of a Presbyterian pastor in Jakarta who three years ago heard Victor's challenge to go out into the communities and to begin to share the gospel of Christ with the Muslim people. This man took that challenge seriously. Since that meeting with Victor John three years ago, and I I can't remember if it was 200 or 300, so I'm going to go with the lower number, but in either case, it is amazing to me. That man has seen 200 Muslim believers go through the waters of baptism for the glory of God. Because the church of God is alive and well. It is a cooperative effort, and when you cooperate with Christ in the things that He's committed to, you can expect that you will endure some type of conflict in your life. And I think it's why Jesus says here, "The gates of hell will not prevail against it." If you go back and read through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll notice on a number of occasions through the Gospel. Do you remember the story of the the sowing of the wheat and the tares in the field? The field is the world, the sower is the Son of God and then there is Satan who is sowing tares in the field. There is this picture of active opposition but immediately following it, it talks about the Kingdom of Heaven being like a mustard seed, something small that bursts forth in great power and begins to influence and affect the whole earth. The Gospel of Christ is also compared to a little bit of leaven that is put into a lump of dough and it begins to infect and impact the whole. And God is showing His church. look. You're going to be functioning in the power of the gospel. You're going to face conflict. But I want you to know that my power is at work in you in this cooperative effort. And, and for our church this morning, here's my heart. My heart is that we become committed to joining with God in this effort of taking the gospel of Christ out into the world around us. That we take up our God-given responsibility in the face of the opposition that often will be present. There is opposition, there is conflict in the context of what we do as believers. Peter would later say this, and I think he must be reflecting on this issue of the gates of hell prevailing. He must be reflecting on his struggling with Satan uh, at the time of the denial of Christ when he is sifted like wheat. Later Peter says this in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. He says, your enemy, the devil, goes about, like a roaring lion seeking someone to swallow down. And then in verse 9 he says this, but resist him strong in the faith. In other words, as you engage in active Christian obedience, particularly to the spreading of the gospel, cooperating with Christ, you can expect active opposition and conflict. And that conflict can cause you to wonder, is it true that the church will be effective? Is it true that Christ will build His church and build it for His glory? And the last thought I want to leave you with this morning in light of that question is this. I believe that Matthew 16, 18 brings us to the word confidence. Confidence because His commitment to build His church is unwavering. Notice how He says it in this text. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That is a powerful promise. Folks, we've been called to cooperate with Christ in an effort that He is deeply committed to in the face of conflict. And we are to engage in that effort with a deep-hearted confidence in the power of God to do exactly what He said He would do. One writer put it this way, He said, evangelism is not ultimately dependent upon human initiative or human wisdom or human perseverance. Now please get the first part. It is not ultimately dependent on human initiative or human wisdom. And isn't that where a lot of our questions go when it comes to sharing the gospel? We would if we knew more. If we thought that we could handle the questions that we know we're going to face, we would share more. You know what God's saying to us? God's saying, you know what, go ahead and share what you know. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 is one of my favorite verses. Paul says this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who will believe. Folks, you know what people need to know? They need to know the simple truth of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, the apostle Paul says, This is the gospel. I delivered unto you that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He was raised again on the third day. If you know that, if you know that Christ died for your sins, you know the gospel. If you know that He was buried and that He rose again on the third day, you know the gospel. You have enough that you can share that will make an impact, that will make a difference in the lives of people around you. What we often lack is confidence. Isn't that true? We lack confidence that the gospel is really going to make a difference. And I just love how this verse ends with this note of confidence. The gates of hell, though they rage against her, will not prevail against her. Why? Because evangelism, the sharing of the good news of Christ, is ultimately dependent on the power and wisdom and faithfulness of the risen And living Christ to keep his promise. You see folks, the ultimate answer here is this. What is my effectiveness based upon? It is based upon the commitment of Christ to work with believers who will cooperate with him in the face of conflict with deep confidence that when we surrender ourselves to him in this effort, he will begin to bless it for his glory. Why go confidently with the gospel of Christ? Why do that? Well, let me just share with you a couple verses real quick. Because there's, there's a phrase that emerges in this passage that I think is very powerful. It's the I will statement. The I will statement. Jesus is making a promise to His disciples. He reiterates that promise in Matthew 24 and verse 14. He says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached among all nations and then the end will come. This gospel will be preached among all nations. Folks, here's the question. Who amongst us as believers is going to join with Christ in obedience to fulfill this task? That's the question that emerges. Which ones of us will say, Lord, I am convinced that you are committed to building your church, and I am willing to join you in that effort? I will no longer sit on the sidelines. I will no longer be a spectator. I'm not going to kick it into neutral. I want to be active in this task of cooperating with you and taking the gospel to those around me. We can do it with confidence because Revelation 5.9 says, He purchased with His blood People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Will you think about the word, I will? Jeremiah 33 and verse 3. Call to me and I will answer you. Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 9. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do what I please. Now here's what's fascinating. That's what Father says in the Old Testament. It is exactly what Jesus is saying Matthew 16 and verse 18. I will defy the gates of hell and build my church for the glory of my Father. He goes on to say this, I say my purpose will stand, and I will do what I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. About His own resurrection, Jesus says, When I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. I looked up in Bible Gateway on my computer yesterday the phrase, I will, just in the Gospel of Matthew alone. Do you want to encourage your heart? Go look at that phrase in the New Testament. Go look at every time that Jesus Christ says, I will. And begin to write down the promises that will encourage you to join Him. And the task that He has called us to do, that is the task of reaching our world with the good news of Jesus Christ.